Confrontations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. It's also, in the midst of coronavirus uh, scares, a place to come for uh, my opinions and my learned knowledge about this subject, and I have some to share with you. Oh, I think I need some more coffee. McCafe, love it. McCafe is a pedestrian coffee for a pedestrian guy. That would be me, Dr. Todd Fredericks, a real medical doctor, a doctor of osteopathic medicine, a tenured research physician and clinician at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, my alma mater, the place where my wife went, my kids went, I love OU. And I'm not just saying that because I have tenure. I don't have to say that, right? But I do. I really love this school. And uh, and uh, I'm here to talk to you today, Corona 2. Um, and it's funny to say Corona 2 because... Um, Corona was actually a uh, intelligence uh, oper- a cor- uh, intelligence program. Go ahead and Google Corona, and you're going to find some interesting things about. Well, first of all, it'll be dominated by a virus, but just look up Corona satellite CIA, and you're going to find out some interesting things about Corona, right? And what Corona is about. Um, so, the reason why I'm doing another episode on Corona is because in this enduring thing that we're doing right now, which is absolutely necessary. Trust me, I'm going to get into that in a minute. Uh, but very confusing and perplexing to people, uh, I thought I would uh, bring you up to speed. I had a very interesting day yesterday. Forgive me. I, I, I'm going to go back to my cafe. I, we was out, I was finally able out at the Association of Military Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons Conference. And oh, by the way, if you are not a military f- uh, physician, but you want to come to AMOPS, we do CME. We do OMT refresher updates. So when we come to our conference next year, we think it'll be in Washington, D.C. If you're a civilian DO and you want to hang out with some military people, we welcome you. You come to AMOPS, A-M-O-P-E. The American Association of Military Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons. You come, you learn, you get to meet a whole lot of young junior officers, a whole, a few crusty old officers like myself, and I think you'll have a really good time getting to know your American military. That's going to bridge the civil military gap. Uh, my good friend Tyler Simon from AACOM showed up, and it was great to have Tyler. Uh, we love having civilians show up at our conferences because we get to know people, and they get to know us, and it's better for the country. Uh, back to my cafe. I found McDonald's while I was in um, in, uh, in Las Vegas, and I had been drinking another brand uh, that has a, a a type of coffee that's named after a certain mountain that's famous in Colorado, and I don't like it. It's kind of weird overtone aftertaste, and I don't I don't deal with that. McCafe is consistent. I buy it in K Cops at Sam's Club. I buy it in ground form at the grocery. I buy it. I buy it from McDonald's, and it's good coffee. I don't know. It's just good. I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm just not a coffee connoisseur, but I'm also a kind of a Bud Light Michelob Ultra guy, too. So uh, why am I doing a second episode? Well, yesterday was a very interesting day, and I think it's important because you should know right now, I gave up cable. My wife uh, reluctantly, and I gave, I didn't give it up reluctantly. I don't like cable at all. It's, it's just a cacophony of noise with very little information. I gave up cable two years ago. I live in a little, such, in, in a little bit of a valley to the point where I can't put up an HD antenna where I can just get regular broadcast. But in my my future retirement bunker, which is in a location I shall not disclose, because if you know me and you're my friend, you'll know where it is. If you're not, then uh, just send me an email. Uh, but uh, it will be high enough that I can get my 
HD TV antenna up and I'll be able to catch just, you know, if I want local news, which is what I really want to see is what's going on. I had a couple conversations yesterday. I had the distinct pleasure, uh, and I'll just disclose this now for those people who've listened for a while. You'll know that I'm a military officer. I am a, I'm a state surgeon of the West Virginia Army National Guard. I work for an incredibly competent group of people. Uh, I work for a wonderful state. Um, full of wonderful people who will give you the shirt off their backs. And yes, West Virginia has its problems. Everybody knows it's it's kind of the butt of jokes sometimes, right? The ground zero Huntington, West Virginia for heroin and and uh, other problems, systemic problems, coal miners that, you know, displaced people working in a depressed economy. But I'm going to tell you something about the people of West Virginia. And in 20, well, shoot, going on about 25 years of service the state of West Virginia, I've never met kinder people uh, more uh, plain and down-to-earth people that would do anything for you in the midst of crisis than the people of West Virginia. They are wonderful folks. And uh, I am a Southeast Ohioan now. I was raised a, a redneck in Northern California. Curious little story about that. I didn't understand why I related so well to Appalachians until I picked up a copy of The Economist going through San Francisco International Airport on my way. I, I lived in California. Finally, I've gotten most of my family convinced to get out of there and get to a better place. Uh, fewer stragglers because they're working in jobs where they're close to retirement and they have to get their pensions. But um, I didn't understand why I related so well to Appalachians, why my wife and I are so aligned on everything. And my wife is a born Appalachian. And it, in The Economist, and it's years ago, and you can look up the issue probably, um, it had the Appalachia of California, and it specifically delineated the area of California I grew up in. Very similar immigration patterns, very similar types of people that immigrated there, very similar stock of people that immigrated there. And that's why I think I love Appalachia so much because it's it's very comfortable. It's just like I grew up as a kid, the same types of people. And if in West Virginia, we have the same types of people. So yesterday I sat in on the governor's briefing, uh, the task force, as you may know right now in Corona, West Virginia, unless they've got a positive case overnight, West Virginia is still white in a sea of red. I think Idaho and Alabama are remaining, and I think Alaska picked up its first positive case of corona, and that makes sense because there's a lot of transit to Asia through Alaska. People don't realize that, but basically UPS has a huge hub in Anchorage. There's a bunch of ways people can come in and out of Alaska from Asia. So it's very close, right? Uh, West Virginia remains white as of this morning that I know of. And the reason why I think is multifactorial, and I'm not going to get into all of it, I'll just say this. I sat in the governor's briefing, and I don't, and I haven't heard DeWines yet. I live in Ohio, just so you know. I work in West Virginia uh, as, a, as a military officer. I'm, a, of course, a professor in Ohio, but you know, we're on this, that river sort of area in uh, Athens County, so we cross back and forth a lot. Um, I don't think I've ever heard a better optically better presentation from an elected leader than I heard yesterday from Governor Justice. It was very, very good. And I'm a person that in my role, I'm very sensitive to optics and shaping public message because I don't like scaring sheep. Uh, I love chaos myself. I like being in chaos. I'm very calm in chaos. Going to combat did not stress me out. I I, I sort of like being in a place where I feel that it really reflects the way most of the world is because now I'm in the red pill realm and we're, we're going to work problems. And I like working problems that are real. But that said, most people don't live that way. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later. This will probably be a fairly long episode, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife who thinks I'm supposed to be at home drinking this my cafe with her. Um, the Governor Justice came in and presented himself both as a West Virginian as a person who is dialed in, 
deeply cares about the people of his state and is making tough decisions we pay leaders to make. Yesterday, Governor Justice uh, rightfully, wisely shut down the public schools. The impact of that is, as you know, very, very significant. And no elected official, unless they're completely, completely detached from reality, is dismissive of that. Immediately, there were answers to serious questions like children who have uh, who experience food scarcity. Uh, that's an academic term, but basically kids who don't have enough to eat at home, for those of you who are not medically inclined or socio- social medicine inclined. How do we handle that? Uh, Department of Education, West Virginia, we got a plan for that. We're, we're starting to implement that right now. Uh, how are we going to get the kids to keep them schooled? We got a plan for that. We've, we're implementing it right now. We've been anticipating it for 10, 12 days, 14 days. We've already engineered it. It's going to happen um, and it's going to get implemented. I was in an agency, uh, which I'm sure is common to many states, but certainly in West Virginia, it's called the Center for Threat Preparation. The staff there is basically a clearinghouse for data and information to try to coordinate responses to natural disasters. As you may know, in West Virginia, there's flooding frequently. I have gone on state duty innumerable times. I've forgotten how many times I've gone on state duty for floods to relieve people who live in a mountainous uh, state with a lot of rainfall and really interesting watersheds that they end up experiencing flooding and they end up experiencing displacement. Um, The state is well prepared for that. The National Guard is well prepared for that. We've all done that duty and we all know how to get into these little hollers and places to help look for people and help them out. And so when you watch a really well-oiled, dialed-in organization, especially from my perspective as a military officer, that understands what limitations are there, we deal with it all the time. We deal with, um, you know, the, the different titles of federal statute, the types of troops. You know, active duty troops can't just be sent to your state. That's a very complicated process that when you hear this president declare a state of emergency, what they're, what he's trying to do is he's trying to open up legislative options so that if, it's, if needed, we can expand the number of people that can come into any given state and really help relieve people. But there are certain limitations based upon the way we've built our country to prevent to prevent uh, active duty forces from just roaming around at will and taking over control from states. And they're very important things. They go back historically, and they should be there in place. And that's why you have a National Guard, right? The National Guard works for the governor of the state of, that they're in. They serve the people in the Constitution of the state they're in. Okay, so our commander-in-chief right now is Governor Justice. And that's good because it means your neighbors are the ones with, with you know, the heavy firepower. Uh, and neighbors don't tend to do bad things to other neighbors, right? We tend to be community-oriented, and we, we're there to help. And so that's the National Guard. And again, I, I'm going to put a plug in. It's not shameless. I'm about to retire, but the legacy of the National Guard needs to continue because it's the backup plan for a lot of this stuff. Getting to places that are remote and inaccessible. Access, because we have the equipment, skill, and expertise to do that. We also have the plans and preparation in our serve, herf, and other teams that you'll see, oftentimes in plain clothes, but those are the people who are looking for biological weapons, they're looking for nuclear weapons, they're looking for all sorts of things at big sporting events, you never see them, they're invisible, but those teams are part of the National Guard, and they are looking for homeland defense, okay? Enough said about that. So yesterday I sent in this briefing, and I'm going to go watch Governor DeWine's briefing, because I'm sure he did an equally uh, uh, efficient job at, uh, at talking about his... Uh, important decision to uh, restrict uh, movement in large bodies of, of people. But uh, I uh, watched this, and I was just totally impressed. I was like, optically, this was beautiful. This really hit all the marks. This, this, this keeps the, the sheep 
when I say the sheep, I mean the typical citizen, the, the peaceable person just trying to go about their life. This keeps the sheep calm. It explains to him what's going to happen. There's plenty of resources that they say, okay, we're fine. He used metaphor perfectly, right? Uh, I'll, I'll say that he, he talked about the monster of coronavirus, that it is a monster. But then he reassured the people of the Mountaineer State that it's a monster we can handle. We're tough enough to handle this thing. We've got this. We just have to stay together as a family and a community of people and do our jobs, and we'll be fine. And he was very, very uh, uh, sincere about saying that the decision to close schools, and I'll get into that in just a second, um, was because of West Virginia per capita has a lot more older people than a lot of states. They are very vulnerable. We have a lot of nursing homes in the state of West Virginia. We have, uh, and I say we, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Ohioan, but I'm also a West Virginian by adoption, right? In the state of West Virginia, there are significant vulnerabilities. There's also significant strengths and barriers to the rapid spread of corona. But he was really good at it. Now, I get on the phone to one of my friends at a certain active duty installation. And this is a, this is a, a point to people who should be in leadership and exercising leadership, especially in social media. And what I'm told by one of my friends, who shall be nameless because I don't want to dime anybody out, it was pandemonium in their institution because the medical staff couldn't come into agreement on who should be tested, when they should be tested, blah, 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 blah. And my associate, who is one of the smartest physicians I know, who is very dialed in on policy, who was... Um, and again, I got to be careful because I don't want to. I want to have non-attribution here. Let's just say that he had part of his career at one of the most um, world-renowned uh, biologic research institutions in the world. In the world, that's redundant. But he knows what he's talking about. Okay. And my buddy says, "Hey, man." I'm cool with CDC guidelines. This way this thing's working based upon my experience with uh, biological weapons. Uh, this is what we should be doing. But in a federal institution, you couldn't get physicians to come together, and apparently there was an utter lack of leadership and people who will just say, look, unlike Governor Justice, who said the other day, and I think I'm quoting correctly, this is why I get paid the big bucks. I make tough decisions. Military leaders who may be listening to this this is not the time to engage in petty arrogance or little silo things or whatever things make you feel better about yourself. I would encourage you to look on your wall, impress yourself with your credentials, and go out that door into public and act like an officer. Act like a leader. Because here's the deal. The average person out there doesn't have any idea really how to put this in perspective. And they are counting on the adults in the room to give them the truth. And they can't get it from the TV. They've got social media exploding trying to make this a problem with the president. They've got all sorts of issues going on. They're confusing him. So grow up, follow the rules, keep people safe. It's real simple. Now, an, uh, uh, one other thing. Junior officers on social media, if you're listening to this, quit complaining about the infringement on your life. Okay. The fact of the matter is, is you're a junior officer in the United States Armed Forces, and you have all sorts of privileges and things that are great in your life. And there are other people out there right now who don't have nearly the access that you do. And so whatever minor inconvenience you're facing, whether it be uh, this is going to delay my timeline or whatever, stop it. Adult up. Okay. Cowboy up. Because this on a scale of one to 10 for you is about a two. Okay, for a lot of people, especially if they're elderly in the nursing home, it could be a 10. 
and I, I, you guys normally don't hear me say that, but it just infuriates me when I see people who should be adults who are wearing, and this is, by the way, none of these examples from the West Virginia Guard. I also had a briefing yesterday from our senior uh, leader, uh, Major General uh, James Hoyer, calm, reassured, competent. It's one of the reasons why I'm in the West Virginia Guard. We have military leadership that is military leadership. It is ordered, disciplined, let's be soldiers, and let's take care of our people because that's our job. I'm so grateful. I'm thankful to the Lord above for putting me in the West Virginia National Guard because in 29 years of military experience, I have consistently been impressed by what happens when I go to war, when I go to state emergencies. We have leadership that knows how to be military leadership. It's really, really a good thing. Oh, that's a shameless plug. If you want to talk to my buddy Luke Goodwin, he's recruiting. Um, I be, we need to follow infection precautions. But if you're looking for a career, uh, my son is a warrant officer. He's down at Fort Rucker going through flight school. Actually, he's in SEER school right now. Um, he uh, is, uh, you know, helicopter pilot, going to be a helicopter pilot in the West Virginia Guard. That's how much I think of it. I'm willing to put my own kid in the organization, right, or encourage him to do so because I believe so strongly in what we do. Okay, that's the officers versus sheep. I am reading off, I'm going off a script. Now let's talk about the basics of corona. And I'm going to explain something to you very carefully. Um, I told you this would be long, but I'm trying to give you the overview of what's known. And I have some experience with this because I'm basically briefed on it two or three times a day. So we know that corona uh, started in Wuhan province, China. That's almost a given. Uh, it probably came here either through traveler or through uh, Chinese academic, an American academic, an American businessman, Chinese business. Someone went back and forth, okay? And, and that just happens, right? We have a lot of relationships and movement between countries. They're big trading partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you see, um, and we talked about this in my first plug earlier this week about corona, is you have to understand what viruses really are. Viruses are not living things. Viruses are basically software packages that take over your cells and make them go crazy, okay? And what a virus does when it infects you is it reprograms your cells to make more viral particles. And they make so many that they usually destroy the cell, the cell splits open, and there's all sorts of little chemicals in every one of our cells. And if they're not managed properly, they cause inflammation. They cause massive amounts of fluid buildup. They cause uh, uh, decay, which can lead to bacterial infection uh, as because this decaying soup in there is food for bacteria. And then all of a sudden, a bacteria that wouldn't normally infect you and your weakened immune system and combined trying to fight this viral infection is now host, a potential host to a, vir- a bacterial pneumonia. This is basically how viruses do their work. Coronaviruses, you've all had them before. Everybody out there's had a coronavirus because if you've had a common cold, there are rhinoviruses, coronaviruses that cause common cold symptoms. But this is a new coronavirus. That's why it was called novel coronavirus or new coronavirus. Coronaviruses can also be more lethal, like in the case of SARS and MERS. And to, and to the extent that we can study it right now, or that we know, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 right, which is what COVID-19 is also known as, Um, initially known as novel coronavirus because no one had seen it before. And again, we don't know where it came from. Uh, There was a speculation it came out of a a biological laboratory that was uncontrolled in China. It, it, It may be, may not be, who knows. But again, like I told you in the first episode, nobody in their right mind releases a biologic weapon uh, without fully understanding it. And, um, I know that the Chinese don't fully understand it because it took them a while to generate a response to this thing. 
and they couldn't contain it. And the last thing any any country building a biological weapon would do is release it on their own population. Uh, it, it may, I mentioned in the first episode that the Navy released influenza virus. That's not true. It was serratia uh, in San Francisco Bay. That got out of control. If you read about, um, oh, I put it in the show notes before, the operation that they did where they um, spread serratia around the San Francisco Bay area, they couldn't believe how far it spread. So the fact of the matter is, is that um, viruses are really, really tough things, and you don't want to mess around with them idly. So this whole conspiracy theory about viral viruses being released from weapons laboratories, probably not true. May have been in a, you know, may have been a shift in a normal coronavirus, a shift and a drift. They're two different things. The reason why flu changes every year is because of shifts and drifts. If a flu virus drifts, it basically changes form, but not to the degree that it becomes in a, in a non-lethal form of flu. Not If it drifts, it doesn't become more lethal generally. It just becomes a different type of flu that the vaccine won't work well with. If it shifts like it did in the 1918 flu, uh, the Spanish flu, it can become super lethal and it can become really dangerous. So did corona, was coronavirus an, a normal coronavirus that, sh- that shifted or drifted? I don't know. Um, you can look up these terms and, and they'll be, they'll be um, helpful for you. I also and this is mostly for medical students, but for people who are interested, there are several books I think that you need to pick up. And I know that the moderns don't want to read books anymore, but this is really important, right? It's really important. You need to read because you'll know and you'll be less frightened of this stuff once you understand. The Demon in the Freezer, Smallpox, Richard Preston. The Hot Zone, Ebola, Marburg, Hemorrhagic Viruses, Richard Preston. So I gave you a first book is The Demon in the Freezer. The second book is The Hot Zone. You need to read both those books. Now, those will be terrifying for you, but understand they're a different type of virus than we're talking about. But it gives you an idea of what, why the measures are being taken right now on this particular type of virus. Um, then you want to read The Ghost Map. And The Ghost Map is all about the cholera outbreak in London. Um, and how epidemiology, the study of how diseases are transmitted in society was developed. Um, a guy by the name of Snow, uh, not, uh, not the, um, the uh, uh, Game of Thrones Snow, but a guy by the name of Snow is the father of epidemiology, and um, that's where the ghost map comes from. Yeah, John Snow, right? Same name, Game of Thrones. But it, uh, it was John Snow who was the epidemiologist that did uh, the ghost map. And then the last book I think you should read, and these are big books, go to Audible. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't back me up. They don't give me any money. But uh, Audible's great. That's how I do almost all my reading, quote-unquote, anymore, because I'm commuting all the time. Um, and uh, Audible is, uh, is a great resource, and you should do it. And I think all these books are available on Audible. The last book is The Great Influenza. Uh, author escapes me, but... Excuse me. It's um, required reading for my junior officers as we progress through our officer development program. They need to know how modern Army... Uh, epidemiologic field sanitation and hygiene practices were developed, and it came out of the 1918 flu pandemic, uh, Spanish flu. Um, that That's probably the best book. If you're going to read anything, download The Great Influenza and patiently, patiently listen to it because it's going to explain to you why public officials are concerned about corona. And it'll do so in, in really, really good ways, okay? So those books give you an understanding of how viruses work and why they are so concerning to public health people. You have heard the term flattening the curve. This is why we closed, I didn't do it, but this is why leadership closed your schools. 
There are only so many ventilators in the United States of America. There just are. And you don't have one on every shelf in Walmart. They're expensive pieces of equipment. They have to be calibrated. They have to be maintained. And if you're not using one, they tend to degrade or they're just not functional well if you have a whole bunch of them just lying around in boxes. They can be mass-produced, but they can't be mass-produced quickly in the sense of a week or two. You have to ramp up production. And so what you have with corona is a weird disease. And just so you know, regardless of, I hope you've heard this on the mainstream media. I listen to Dr. Fauci. He's about the only guy I look for is his comments. What, we, what the problem with corona is, is it has a unique property that it is more infectious. It's actually not that much more infectious than flu. In fact, it may be a little less infectious than flu. The problem is, is that you shed corona uh, before you become symptomatic. The serial interval, which is the time, the serial interval, not serial like eating cereal, serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, interval, is a period of time that you can expect a person who's infected to infect another person. That's that period of time between infection. Uh, it's pretty short. Um, and so you get two to four or five days between infections, Right. The problem is, is that a person, as we know, could have coronavirus, be shedding viral particles that can infect other people for a period that's longer than the period it takes for them, or actually shorter, or excuse me, longer than, it's, than the period it takes for them to develop symptoms, or it, 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 truly. So you could have coronavirus be walking around and shedding these viral particles days before you become symptomatic. Now, with the flu, flu is pretty rapid, so you get symptomatic pretty quickly, and we know that flu is out there, so people are thinking about it, um, and the bottom line is, is that we understand the dynamics of flu pretty well, and flu is generally a slow burn, what I would call a slow burn. That's the flattened curve. Flu happens over months and months and months, and yes, we lose, tragically, 18, 20, 40,000 people who die from flu every year, but we can accommodate that number of cases and still maintain our ability to care for other cases that require ventilatory support. It also appears to be the case with corona that secondary infection, uh, and there's two terms I'm going to use that may be conflated for you. Secondary infection, in the first sense I'm going to use it, is do you get a pneumonia, a bacterial pneumonia, because of a weakened immune system and all the things are going on with the viral infection? That's actually not uncommon with flu, and that's usually how people die from flu, is they die from a secondary bacterial pneumonia causes all sorts of fluid buildup in the lungs, and it just die, really. Uh, they die because you, can't, you just can't get ahead of the disease. Corona is unique in that it appears that more than one secondary infection can occur. So that's a concern because if you have a person that has diabetes, if you have a person that has uh, COPD, lung disease, uh, there's no shortage of that in this country, right? Then what can happen is they're already vulnerable. They get this disease that's that's pretty aggressive like the like flu, but it can cause multiple infections, and we don't have any kind of antiretroviral, or antivi antiviral drug, I should say, just retroviral. We don't have any kind of antiviral drug, not, not antibiotics. This is not an antibiotic treatment. So if so you're getting your Z-pack, it's doing you nothing if you have coronavirus, okay? Just remember that. That's an antibiotic, an antibacterial. It is not an antiviral. If you get your antiviral, uh, for flu, Tamiflu, we know that that will reduce symptoms by a day or so, and it, it probably reduces the total, uh, the total um, severity of the disease. 
There's nothing like that for Corona right now. There's some stuff in trials, rapid trials right now, but you also have to make sure you don't kill people, right? So I'll use the famous example of the drug Trovan, which is a completely separate class of drugs. It's an antibacterial, but it was pulled off the market because it was basically turning people's livers into Swiss cheese, right? So it was terrible. We thought it would work. It went through FDA trials, and then got out in the general population for widespread use, and it was pulled off the market very rapidly because it was causing people to go into liver failure. There are drugs like that. And so you don't want to just release – you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease, right? So if you release these antivirals without proper testing, if they don't do a good job against corona but they kill people, well, that's no good either. It takes time to do this, right? It takes often years – to grow a viral culture in a lab, so you can do all this testing, and then you have to reproduce the testing. You have to do all that. viruses. Every clinician knows that viruses are really hard to grow. Like we have to wait sometimes a couple of weeks to get the viral culture back because it takes so long to grow the viruses. You have to find the proper cell medium. You have to culture it properly. And viruses, as tough as they are, are sometimes pretty fragile and finicky about what they'll grow in. So, for the for the CDC, the FDA, anybody doing testing on viruses. USAMRID, the United States Army uh, Research Infectious Disease Research Institute, USAMRID. Um, it's actually United States Army Research Institute for Infectious Disease. Sorry, guys, at USAMRID, right? So I think I got the name right. We just call it USAMRID. The, 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 you know, the, the geniuses up there who, uh, who work in biohazard level four suits all the time with Ebola and the terrible stuff trying to figure out how we fight that. Um, you know, you... You have to wait sometimes a very long time to get a good viral culture that's not contaminated that you can then do testing on, right? You have to ramp that up. That's why it takes a long time to get this stuff done. Um, and so you've got a disease that you shed particles. You've got a disease that can make you very sick rapidly. And you can have secondary tertiary infections from this. It also appears that it's possible to have coronavirus again, that immunity may not um, be complete. So for instance, if you get chickenpox as a kid, it's generally believed you have lifetime immunity. I, I personally believe there's probably some anecdotal cases where people don't develop complete immunity. In fact, I think I know that's a fact. I'm just not that steeped on that and I'm, I'm riffing right now. But basically, people can get chickenpox a second time, but it's very, very rare. Most of the time in a healthy person, you, you develop a, an immune response that allows you to have antibodies that will recognize the chickenpox virus, attack it very quickly. At this point, based upon what we know about this SARS-CoV-2, right, COVID-19, um, we think it's possible that people could be reinfected, um, which means that in the young people and in the young adults and children that, okay, they get another cold, but it's the elderly. This is all about the elderly. Let's, let's be honest. Um, those are things that we sort of know about corona. We, we don't know how long you shed virus after your symptoms go away. Some people say it could be upwards of three or four weeks. So when you start looking at the time period of, of why people are closing institutions for so long, it's because when you, when you have these large institutions, let's just say university, and you bring all these people back in from all over the world, and they don't have any symptoms at all, and they don't have a fever, all the methods that you're currently being like in our hospital, if I go to work, when I go to work next week, I'll be forced to go through the front entrance. I'll be forced to have my temperature measured. I'll be forced to be fill out a form saying, do I have any symptoms? The problem is, is I could be shedding viral particles and not even know it, right? I'll get into that about uh, Kroger here in a minute. I'm going to call out Kroger. Um, the kill rate. Vox today... 
Well, I think it's, I, I think it was Vox. Let's see if I can find it here for us. Yeah, here's Vox. I, I would encourage you, I'm going to put this in the show notes too. Uh, where's Vox? Here's Vox. Vox did a really nice job of kind of collating all these diagrams. I went and searched for it because, uh, well, this is February 18, 2020, so this is over almost a month ago. But you'll see flattening the curve explains it nicely. I want you to look at, they don't have it listed as figure, but it's called, um, uh, what's it called? It's called How Contagious is Disease? right? So they talk about the R-naught to estimate how many other people one sick person is likely to infect. Now, there's this rumor going around that um, that I see various numbers on this. So the R-naught, some people have, I've seen some data that shows that COVID, that, that, uh, that uh, novel coronavirus, which is what they listed as NCOV, is, is about the same as influenza, I have seen others that show it's higher. So for so it, let's put this perspective. If you have the measles, and this is why medical people constantly encourage you to get immunized against measles. If you have measles, you will on average infect 11 to 18 other people, okay? And measles is a rough disease. Measles maims and kills people. That's why we immunize against it. Ebola, the average person who gets infected by Ebola, will only infect two other people. Zika, uh, between three and six people. Seasonal flu, you get the flu, you're going to infect on average one to three other people. Uh, HIV, oh, well, let's talk about norovirus. Norovirus, which is common in children, uh, they can lead to all sorts of really tough things, bad diarrheas. Uh, it can cause all sorts of problems with children. They can end up in children's hospitals for this. Between 1.6 and 3.7. So one child infected with norovirus can potentially infect 1.6 to 3.7 other children. HIV. Now, this is a disease that's completely behavioral, right? If you don't shoot drugs and you're not engaged in certain types of practices, you don't get HIV. Or if you do, you don't transmit it. The average person has HIV infects between 3.6 and 3.7 people. And there are reasons around the world that differ for why that transmission rate is that way. I won't get into that. It's too political, and no one can have a rational discussion when you start talking about HIV unless you're in an infectious disease conference, and even then it gets crazy sometimes. The infectivity rate of COVID-19 is one person gets infected, they infect on average two to three others, Okay. So greater than the flu, greater than Ebola, about somewhere around what Zika's low end is. Um, now, Zika, if you get it and you're pregnant, if Zika, if you get it and you're not pregnant, you kind of feel achy. I, I think I had Zika. I went to, to Haiti and I think I contracted it. I just felt kind of malaise and fatigue and kind of achy. Pregnant women, they have children who have microencephaly and it's, ter it's maiming to babies. So that's why, you know, military people are told not to get pregnant for six months. I think it is the guidelines currently in the Zika endemic area right? Do not get pregnant because you have a high risk of transmitting this to your child. So you have a fairly high infectivity rate, not as high as measles. And this is a different discussion. Um, again, I told you this might be a little long because I am riffing. I had to correct another military officer who used the term anti-vaxxer and it infuriates me because I reminded them that no mother hates her kid. So using the term anti-vaxxer is negative it's insulting. It's also dismissive of mothers who care about their children or fathers who care about their children and are worried about doing something to harm their baby. So stop using the term anti-vaxxer. It's a stupid term. It shows ignorance on the part of any physician that uses it. I prefer to use vaccine naive 
or vaccine uninformed, or how about I just talk to you about it and why you're worried about it? I told you before the infectivity rate of measles is between one and uh, for one person, 11 to 18 people contract it. That's why I tell parents it's so infectious. Basically, if I walk into a room with someone with measles and I'm not immunized and I sit in the room for an hour with them, let's say a 10 by 10 space, I'm probably going to get measles if I'm not immunized. It's really infective. They don't have smallpox on here, but smallpox is another one like that. I don't know what the infectivity rate of smallpox is or the r not. I could just tell you it's ruthless, okay? Thank goodness we don't know smallpox. People would really lose their minds, okay? Uh, smallpox is really bad. Polio. Uh, I don't think it's as, as, it may be higher. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. I'll look at the r not uh, for polio. In fact, um, let's just pause real quick. I'm going to look it up for you. Uh, to the chagrin of some of my uh, more Luddite uh, colleagues, Wikipedia, of course, knocks us out of the park with good references. Um, a great page. Look at basic reproduction number. I'll put it in the show notes for various diseases. So I told you accurately, measles 12 to 18 is the r not. Diphtheria, uh, it's, you know, uh, six to seven. Smallpox is five to seven. It's airborne droplet spread. Polio was five to seven. Mumps, four to seven. Um, uh, pertussis, whooping cough, five, on average, 5.5 people. Um, SARS, two to five. Uh, and Wikipedia is now citing uh, COVID-19 between 1.4 and 3.9. Uh, MERS, uh, 0.3.8. But it's the lethality of these diseases and the maiming potential of these diseases is so terrifying, okay? Um, go re- basic reproduction number. Any medical student listening to this, we're giving you a primer on viral illness and why you need to understand this stuff so you can explain it to people, but also vaccines too. Having a parent understand how many people become infected and what the maiming potential of these diseases is sometimes changes the discussion, especially when you couch it with, um, and I immunize my own kids, and I know you're afraid of autism, but I've looked at the research. It's extremely improbable that that's the case. I'm a scientist. I can't say absolutely. Based upon what we know, it's so improbable that your child will contract autism from measles. Is it possible in 7 billion people that there's some variation in genetics that predisposes someone to be triggered towards autism based upon immunization? I can't discount that. I can't comprehensively guarantee that, but I can say it's so trivially small, trivially small, that I would never worry about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be concerned about it. I would never advise someone not to be immunized against measles because the risk of ever contracting anything else from that vaccine is so infinitesimally small, probability-wise, as to be, I, sus- I suspect we could say, impossible, even though mathematically it's probably possible. But what is possible is you get measles, you get maimed. Uh, people hurt, get hurt. They, they, it's bad. It's really bad. So you need to have that honest, sincere conversation with people when you're talking about vaccines so that they're not terrified. This is all about not scaring lay people. And doctors are miserable at this sometimes. They talk in jargon. They don't understand that not everybody's gone to medical school. And they really do have legitimate concerns. And so that's why I do this. I want people who listen to kind of understand what the thought process is of doctors and infectious disease specialists when we're talking about these things that make us close schools and universities. So I talked to you about the latency of shedding. Now, there's a whole bunch of people who I know who are on social media using this for, as a political weapon, and they're doctors and they should know better, and they should shut their mouths. They should be leaders right now, and they should not be scaring the sheep. I'm just saying that. Quit scaring the sheep, okay? Because the fact of the matter is, is that the reagents were not um, up to par. And so 
we are producing them rapidly now, ramping up production very quickly. But if you don't have the proper test and you don't have and you have a very unique kind of thing that only a few labs can test for, it takes a little while for a country to ramp up to that. And it doesn't happen in two days. It happens in three to four weeks, which is what's happened, right? The president, this is another thing that infuriates me because it shows the absolute ignorance of how people, uh, people's understanding of their own government. I have worked around the elected leaders of our nation, okay? Here's how this works. The president gets uh, information in a daily brief saying, we think we have a problem in Asia. It could be about the flu, right? There is a place called the Defense Medical Intelligence Agency, okay? There is the CDC. There are people out there that when there's a significant problem, usually the Surgeon General will end up telling the President of the United States, whoever they are, okay, if you have particular problems with their current administration, I'm sorry, but it happens with previous administrations too. They say, hey, listen, we're seeing a trend right now in Asia, because this is where most flus start, right, is Asia. Um, We've seen a trend. We think it could be a problem. What they're seeing in China is like this, blah, 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 blah. The president is the chief executive officer of the United States of America under Article 2 of the United States Constitution, who has certain limited powers and authorities, picks up a telephone and calls the president of China. That's what happens, okay? It's not like they're having an email conversation or they're talking through social media or Twitter. Our president does like to use Twitter. So did, by the way, the last president. The last president used social media very effectively to win his election. But people seem to forget that, okay? He just spoke differently because our current president is a New Yorker. And if you've ever been in New York, and I'll, maybe if I have a little time, I'll tell you about the Little Red Caboose, which is a great place, and I, I can't, I can't um, uh, uh, promote it enough because I love those guys, but they're, they're, they're different. And I'll tell you... The, the, the president of the United States is a New York real estate developer. And if you have any awareness of what happens on the island of Manhattan and how aggressive that industry is, it's the most pricey real estate in the world, right? These people are not people who just mince words. And if you've ever spent any time around New Yorkers, I'll just tell you about the Little Red Caboose. Um because it's a little divergence from the weighty episodes of virology. The Little Red Caboose is a hobby store in a basement in Manhattan. I'll tell you how to get there, because you should go. I happen to be, among other things, as part of my general eccentricity, which I fully embrace, I happen to be a collector of die-cast model airplanes. I love them. I love airplanes. I love flying. I just love flying. So I like to look at these beautifully made little models, and I collect them, like a lot of people collect you know, Coca-Cola memorabilia, or, or they collect other things, John Deere tractors, you name it. People like to collect things, and they like they enjoy them. Tchotchkes, clowns, I don't know what they are. Um, I'm thinking of Joe Dirt. Anyway, uh, you know, if you have a frown, get a clown. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, there's a little place called the Little Red Caboose. If you go to Times Square, the street that McDonald's and Times Square is on, and I don't know it because I don't know the cross street real well, but go to Times Square, you know, the same place you get your cheap, um, Broadway tickets, which, by the way, they've closed on Broadway now because they don't want big gatherings of people, rightfully so. But the same street that the Marriott Hotel is on that goes across the street past the McDonald's, head east about three blocks, on your left will be a restaurant, I think, and then maybe two doors down is a place. It'll see a little sign. It says Little Red Caboose. You go in through the building, go in through the door. You go downstairs. And I was just there um, in November 
for a strategic leadership conference with the military. We had to go to the UN and we had to do a couple other things. And so I thought, well, this is a great time to go to Little Red Goose. I hadn't been there for a couple of years. I was at the last NAPCRAG, North American Primary Care Research Group conference in Manhattan. That's when I found the Little Red Caboose. Nothing's changed. I went into the store and the store owner, who I won't, I forget his name now, um, was saying that to a Midwesterner or an Appalachian, the most atrocious things to his buddy. And they're calling everything, they're calling each other names and they're using the F bomb and blah, 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 blah. They're going on. And I'm like, this is painful to listen to. It's just abusive, right? And I walked up to the counter and I said, hello, sir. And he said, what do you want? That's how he addressed me. What do you want? Well, I'd like to buy some airplanes. And all, he's, oh, you want to buy some airplanes? Yes, sir, I, I would like to buy some airplanes. I see some over in your display counter. Could I, could I look at them and buy some? Oh, okay. And so I got my airplanes, and he's still calling. His, he says, hey, hey, you blank and moron, would you go help this guy? That's how they're talking to each other, just normal conversation. I pick up my airplanes and go to the counter, and I noticed, because several years ago he had a lovely yellow tabby cat that used to roam around the store, and I said, I noticed your tabby cat's not here. And he goes, yeah, well, he died a few weeks ago. Or a month or so ago. And I said, I'm really sorry. That must be hard on you because yeah, this cat was a fixture in the store, right? And he said, yeah, it's been hard. Demeanor completely changes. Because I also happen to be a person sensitive to social engineering and, and diplomacy because I've done a lot of that in the military. Try to get into someone's world, right? That's what good family physicians do too. We try to get into your world and we try to figure out what makes you tick. Well, this guy's cat made him tick, right? So I realized that and I said, yeah, the conversation completely changed. He goes, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you came to the store today. Would you like to be on the mailing list? Uh, will you be back? You know, uh, Let me look up these prices. He says, I'm going to cut you a deal on this one. Totally different, right? This is a reflection of a culture. And I'm saying this because if you understand that, then a lot of what our president does, you say, that's just the culture he's in, right? For the same reason I have a twang sometimes when I'm steeped for a long period of time with people down south. It just comes. I start mannerisms, all that. Anybody who's ever traveled to England that's an American will know eventually their voice changes a little bit. They start speaking and inflecting the way the culture does if they're sensitive to it. So weaponizing this thing against the president is a bad idea. It's really stupid. It's going to make the president look better, by the way, at the end of the day. But here's what the president does. The president doesn't tweet to the president of China. The president picks up the phone because he can get anybody in the world on any vehicle he's on, Air Force One, the White House, you name it. He says, I want to talk to the president of China. Yes, sir. Calls him up. Says, hey, what are you seeing over there? What should we be worried about? I'm a little concerned about closing the border. Do you think it's necessary? What are your scientists seeing? And the president of China says, we got a problem. And we understand you got to close the border. we got to contain this thing. And we're sorry it's going crazy over here, but we'll, we'll figure it out, right? Yeah, we'll figure it out. That's how this actually works. That's why... We didn't close the borders with England and Ireland, but we closed the borders with other parts of Europe. That's why the president said what he said the other day, where some countries he wants to deal with, some countries he doesn't want to deal with. It's because of the conversation and tone in which he has on that phone when he calls the leader of that country. If the president wants to talk to Angela Merkel, I can guarantee in five minutes he's talking to Angela Merkel. Okay? So I'm just telling you this because I know it to be a fact. In the worlds I've worked in, that's how this works. So whatever you're thinking about delays or that we dropped the ball or whatever, that's not what happened. It's a very serious conversation about the economic impact of nations and what will happen to people and, and single mothers with their children and, and schools and food supplies and disruption of, of global communications, you name it. 
Okay, so if you want to sit there smugly in your seat and think, I know everything, I'm telling you right now, you don't. Okay, so please be a leader. Please talk about what you do know and let people be rest assured that there's adults in the room that are helping them out. It's really important because this is a serious problem right now. What we're looking at is very serious. So, lack of testing reagent availability, making sure that we have adequate tests. And part of the problem I told you about my friend at the military installation the other day was that there was one group of doctors said we should test everybody. And there's another group of doctors saying we don't need to test everybody because in most people this is a pretty, pretty sublime disease. It would be great if we had 320 million swabs that we could run through LabCorp in four days. And, and LabCorp is doing testing. That's why I mentioned their name. We could run them all through LabCorp and know immediately who's infected, but it wouldn't make any difference because, by the way, we have a southern border that's unsecured, so we've got millions of people coming in from outside of the United States, and if we can reinfect people, okay, the reality is is that, guess what, it won't matter, okay? When you have people streaming across a border that you can't control because you don't have adequate, you can't can't mitigate, right? You don't have adequate control measures to stop to stem that tide so you can screen the bulk of them, you've got a lot of people coming in that are potentially infected. So we don't test everybody. We test people with serious symptoms. Now, that leads into why, oh, by the way, Menards is still being built in Athens. The world is going on. Trucks are on the freeway. Commerce is moving. The toilet paper will come back. There's an internet thing I haven't found a reference. If you guys know about it, you send me the reference. But my understanding was the reason why the run on the toilet paper happened is that somewhere someone heard that the toilet paper tubes are, the rolls are produced in China, and then we put the toilet paper on the roller, which could be completely possible. There's a lot of that outsourcing and subcontracting um, subassemblies that go on overseas. That's part of the discussion we're having now about strategic resources. And that people heard that, oh, they're going to run out, that China won't be importing these, and then we'll be able to have toilet paper. They'll have toilet paper, Okay. China is opening up its Apple production facilities, uh, I heard just yesterday. And if that's the case, then other industries in China are opening up. And pretty soon, the supply chain will be reestablished, and that stuff will start coming in. That's why when we talk about what you need for this, it's about a two- to four-week, probably closer to the four-week thing, you know, shelter in place, limited resources for a little bit of time, but then things will start picking up. The toilet paper will show up, okay? No one's running out of toilet paper yet, okay? Quit buying toilet paper because there's because I'm going to get into the next thing, which is, well, I'll go to OU first. Then we'll talk about Kroger. Closing OU. So last night I wake up, or I was, my wife and I are watching Narcos. Uh, we finished it. Felix is in jail now, just so you know. Um, and um, so, you know, it's a sort of a miserable story about this poor DEA agent that's trying to basically avenge the death of his brother uh, with, from drugs. And it's, a, it's actually well-produced, season one, season two. And it really gives you an impression of what's going on. And I think it's actually pretty factual. My friends on the southern border, uh, Northern Command, talked to me about what's going on down there. Um, yeah, it's a different story, but basically narcos. So it's a compelling story, well done, uh, well-produced. I go to my email. OU is going to not have any on-site classes for the rest of the semester. Boom. Boom. Oh, my goodness. Now, that's, that's huge, right? That's, that's huge. Liberty University, by the way, has not decided to do that, and I think that's a really bad idea. I think Liberty, which has incredible and extensive online learning, Liberty really needs to rethink that because Lynchburg is a fairly isolated part of Virginia, and 
they bring all the students back from Liber- into Liberty and they come into the Lynchburg area, it's entirely possible they could have some, especially with the nursing school and the medical school, they could end up having some problems in local nursing homes uh, like they did in Seattle, okay? This is really important, and I keep reminding people, because of the latency of viral shedding, they could go on for weeks after you're symptomatic. You think your cold's done and you're still shedding coronavirus particles. Because you're shedding viral particles before you even know you're sick, you come back to school, you deal with the public, it gets into our small communities here where we have several nursing homes, and you could wipe out a nursing home. It is no secret that OU is a diabetes center. We have a lot of diabetics in this community. We have a lot of people who are at risk because of what we would call medicine comorbidity, medical conditions that weaken them, that if they didn't have them, they'd be a healthier person. If, if you give these people coronavirus, they die. They get sick, really sick, and in some cases die. And what we don't need in a small community like Athens, which has a limited, a very small ICU, is saturating our ICU, then having to ship a bunch of people up to Columbus where they get further exposed to other infections and saturate their ICU of ventilators. That's what will happen because of the rapidity with which this disease can kill people who have comorbidities. Why do they close the elementary schools? Well, we live in a society now where grandmas do a lot of daycare. They do a lot of care for their children. You got single parents or dual working parents. Kids go home to grandma. So you bring kids in. They run them around the school. Everybody gets cross-contaminated with everybody. And grandma doesn't get the rhinovirus because she already had it years ago and got her cold and now has immunity. But grandma gets COVID-19. Now all of a sudden, grandma gets sick and goes in the ICU. Now who takes care of the child? I mean, these are really, really serious things. And they, they need to be considered. And you need to think about what the impact would be if we wiped out a large portion of our elderly population, which could happen. You look at what happens to people above 80 with COVID-19 if they're exposed. Just, just Google it. Age-related deaths, COVID-19, percentage of people who get it and die. It's not, it's, it's, it's not reassuring, okay? Menards is going to open. Uh, so Kroger. Oh, OU. Uh, OU is rapidly, like every other university, having to examine its soul. I walked into the, the medical school, my alma mater, my, my comfortable place with my tchotchkes, my bobbleheads, and my film posters, uh, and, of course, my, my studio, and the bathroom window's open. Oh, wonder of wonders. We're ventilating and exchanging air in the medical school. Um, I would put this out as a challenge. I've always wondered this. We don't build basements anymore in the Midwest because we're so dependent upon air conditioning. We think it'll always be there. The reason why people built basements in the Midwest is because it's very hot and humid in the summer. And in the summertime, people would go to their basements where the ambient ground temperature is about 50 some odd degrees and they would be cooler. And all they'd have to run is a simple dehumidifier at very low power usage to keep the air dehumidified enough that they could comfortably live in their basements. We don't build basements anymore because we have central air. And then we close off all our buildings because we have smart buildings, right? Smart buildings, you can't rapidly exchange air. And oh, by the way, what happens if your HEPA filters get saturated on your air handling system? And who's the poor person that has to deal with that HEPA filter that's been filtering out all those viral particles? And then they get exposed when they don't have proper infection precautions. So a simple opening window is a really good thing. Because if I want to rapidly exchange air in a big building and I have a little bit of a breeze outside, I can open all the windows, and I can move all that air out, and all the bad contagion leaves. 
okay, or a good chunk of it does. Orthopedists have a saying because they irrigate things like crazy. Actually, probably urologists do too because they that's a that's the wettest of all surgical practices. If you don't like being wet, don't be a urologist. Um, the solution to pollution is dilution. The more air exchange, the more air is out there to dilute these viral particles so they're not so concentrated, so they can't get a great foothold, that your normal immune system uh, defenses can intercept the, the, odd, the, the odd viral particle out, so to speak, and deal with it versus a huge load that hits you at one time, the better. A really smart building is one you can open the windows. A really smart building is one that is um, built with the environment in mind that, that has a cooler basement that you can, if your air conditioning goes out, you can still run operations because people aren't miserable in 80% humidity and 150 degree temperature. Well, 100, 100 degrees in the Midwest, right? So I, hope, I wonder why it's so cool in, in Grosvenor. And it's the windows open. Someone was smart enough to say, let's exchange the air in the med school. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was just a bad uh, experience in the bathroom. They just opened the window for, for courtesy. I don't know. But the Romans in London had a field hospital. And one of the notable things in the reconstructions I saw in the archaeologists was all the windows opened. I think they all opened anyway back then but because they didn't have, I don't think they were installing glass. But it was common practice to just air out hospital wards, even in the, in the flu influenza pandemics right, or 1918, open the windows, let the ward ventilate because you're concentrating all this contagion in one place, cross level out the air, right, get rid of it, okay, flush it, that's the important thing. Um, hard to do at OU today, hard to guarantee what students will do, they, you know, there's this uh, rapper, what's his name, uh, Post Malone, Post Malone, right, I saw a picture the other day of, uh, He's a hip-hop artist, right? I, I saw this um, uh, picture the other day of a Post Malone concert. Now, I, you know, knowing what the media does, knowing about Photoshop, knowing about how that, it appears he had a concert the other day, and it was packed full of people, right? Well, people do what people will do, okay? You know, compliance, for, if you're a doctor and you're thinking that your patients are doing everything you say, then you're deluded, Right? They've done research studies on this stuff. Um, you can look at it PubMed. Compliance rates, average compliance rates for most patients, I think 40% is about the best you get, that people do exactly what you tell them. When you tell them to shelter in place, they're not. They're going out. They're going to go to a Post Malone concert. They're going to go find Taco Bell. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Okay, But what a university can do, because the university doesn't want to be ground zero for killing off a nursing home, Okay, they want to make sure that they are doing the best they can to protect their students and the population in which they live. Right? Think about what the implications would be if one of our local nursing homes had 20 fatalities and they traced it back to a student that came back to OU after spring break. It would be devastating. Not, not because, just because, not just because 20 elderly people lose their lives, but because the university president didn't have the strategic vision to see where this could go and protect the community that supports his institution or her institution. In our case, it's Dr. Nellis. Dr. Nellis didn't have a choice. Dr. Nellis had to do what Dr. Nellis had to do for the safety of Athens as a community. That's legit. That's really legit, okay? Um, so let's talk about Kroger. Kroger, I'm going to call you out. If you're listening to this, I already tweeted you. You need to get with the program, and you need to open up your scan lanes, all of them, and you need to open up Scan and Go, because what I saw today because people will do what people will do, where people at 6.30 in the morning, see, I thought I'd get up, I'd go at 6.30, I'd get my few little groceries I needed. My wife's out of Diet Dr. Pepper. She likes Diet Dr. Pepper. 
I thought, I'll go in early. I don't get it. Put on a pair of gloves because the shopping carts are filthy. Brought seven or eight benzyl alcohol, uh, uh, whatever Clorox wet wipes I had uh, to wipe things down. Didn't wear a mask. I wasn't worried about a mask. Just distanced myself six to seven feet. And um, I uh, walked in. And I noticed the shopping, the parking lot was about a third full. Like, this is not normal, and it's dark in Athens, right? People are buying baskets and baskets of groceries. Now, there's plenty of stuff on the, I was able to get Tostitos. I got some salsa verde. I got my Dr. Pepper. I uh, got some sour cream to make some dip with my Hidden Valley Ranch dip. Uh, this stuff's all there, but there are people buying this stuff. And then they're bunching up in the scanning, the scanning lanes, self-scanning lanes, because the, the normal checkout lanes aren't there. Well, Kroger, if you want to get with the program, scan and go, minimizes patient contact. People can bag their groceries as they're shopping. They can go through the payout lane and be in and out in minutes, seconds. When I scan and go, I don't have much personal person contact. I scan the barcode at the checkout. I put my card in. Beep, beep. I get the receipt. I'm out the door. I sat in that line for 10 minutes at 630 in the morning waiting for an open lane because we have people that were buying 300 items of groceries in the self-scan lane. You're not helping the problem. And I'm not saying I like Kroger. I think Kroger's a great Ohio business. But you need to start thinking about what you need to do. And I don't care what your computer systems do. You pay millions of dollars probably for people to program your computers. Get them to start opening that stuff up so scanning goes open continuously. And oh, by the way, put tubs of disinfectant wipes or have your staff wipe those things down with Clorox wet wipes before they restock them. At the front of the star, the scanner, scan and goes. Okay? I'd be really smart. And I, th- and I think it's just an oversight because people aren't thinking about true infection control. You know, when I took my gloves off, right, I had my wipes. I wiped down my gloves, right, wiped down every surface I touched, took off my gloves, threw them in the trash, wiped down my hands with another Clorox wet wipe. Okay? I'm deconning. Principles that we learned in uh, chem bio in the military, Using your decontamination wipes to to get stuff cleaned off before you end up touching it, okay? Yeah. Uh, Kroger. I like Kroger. I shop at Kroger a lot. I really like their products, and I like their services, and they're a great company, but they need to open up those lanes. Because here's my thinking. If you're a grandma or a grandpa, and you want to go do your grocery shopping, you're going to do it early in the morning. If you're like me, I get older, I get up early in the morning. Um, I get up early in the morning, Right? Well, if I go in there and I have to sit in line with a whole bunch of people, they're thinking the apocalypse is here, and they're buying 300 different grocery items, I'm not able to get in and out of there quickly. And that's the vulnerable population we're worried about. We need to make accommodations, even for the short term, for the next 60 days or so, so that people can get in and out quickly and minimize exposure, right? And ordering online, I can tell you right now, my mother-in-law doesn't know the first thing about a computer. We can help her. But it's really hard for her. A lot of these people don't have computers. They don't use them. So they're not going to just order online and come pick up their groceries. They're going to come into your grocery store. Help them out. Open up access. It's really important. Uh, we have a new way versus an old way of thinking. We're almost done with this. And I'll probably do it again in a couple of days if, if data changes. But there's a new way versus old way of thinking. And it's still the old way. Just like I told you about buildings, opening windows and ventilating. One thing that's going to happen potentially and I had a good couple talks with some friends of mine that work in ERs and urgent cares yesterday. Their administrators aren't helping them. We're not going to close the urgent cares. We won't do it. We, we, we can't stand to do that. But you're not providing me with PPE, personal protective equipment, or N95 masks. 
So what you're asking me to do is, oh, by the way, the ER doctor I talked to yesterday saw 30 relatively healthy young adults, all of whom could have been shedding coronaviruses, all of them been demanding testing. The, 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 the person who's running his facility said, we're going to test everybody. Well, unfortunately, you don't have those kind of resources yet. Maybe in a couple of weeks you'll have that. But you don't need to test these people according to CDC. What you don't need them in is in your ER because they're now shedding viruses, potentially viral particles, that will infect people. And then the elderly come in and they get whacked that are really sick with flu, but then they, want, they end up with coronavirus, right? So one of my buddies says, oh, the administrator just told me we're not going to close the urgent care and, and there's, we're not going to provide PPE. Malpractice. Administrative malpractice. Totally wrong. Your frontline providers are out there paying your salary with their work. You need to protect your frontline providers, and you need to give them in-services about how to properly don and doff PPE, and you need to make sure you're controlling the amount of people coming in and out of that institution because here's what an urgent care waiting room is. It's a giant human Petri dish is what it is. You walk in there with an elbow sprain. You're surrounded by four people who are coughing, uh, three people who have corona aren't coughing. You are exposing yourself, and then you that person walks back in the room, one cough, one sneeze in the doctor's face, and an ethical physician under CDC guidelines has to now self-quarantine. And what the ripple effect of that is, is this. You are going to run out your doctors in about three weeks. You are going to, doctors who have any kind of ethical conscience will say, this person tested positive for corona. I can't go back to work. I'll expose people. So uh, hospital administrators, if you want to have uh, continued uh, uh productivity and you want to continue to see uh, your BMW payments, you better protect your frontline providers. Because if ethically, probably from a medical malpractice standpoint, if they know are knowing exposed to COVID-19 and they don't self-isolate for 14 days and come off work, uh, huge liability. And oh, by the way, you won't have a doctor. And oh, by the way, the impact on the healthcare system will be dramatic. So you better get your head around this thing and you better start listening to the infectious disease people and you better start telling them, look, make sure our, all of our doctors have proper PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. Make sure that they're wearing N95 masks when they're dealing with anybody with a potential respiratory problem and make sure we are cleaning the heck out of everything with Clorox, okay? It's infuriating. Uh, doctors gave up their position as medical leaders a long time ago, uh, and that's why your hospitals are so jacked up right now. That's why you don't you have people running around that are so concerned about shareholder, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and bad decisions are being made. It's time to man up. Start using your, your big brain and start protecting your assets because if you run them out in the short term, the long term is going to be a real problem for everybody. I can say that, uh, and I'll continue to say that, because I've got junior doctors that feel threatened because of their school loans and because of everything else, and they don't want to lose their job. And I have to remind everyone, it's a seller's market. You'll get a job tomorrow as a physician. Do not put up with this anymore. You tell these administrators, if you want me to continue to work here, you will do this. Because if you don't do this, I will find a way to get out of this contract. I will go out and find another job, and you won't have a doctor. So start looking after your people. Um. I have to do it as a military officer. We look after our people. It's what we do because they're our, they're our most important resource. Uh, where does this end? It's the last thing we're going to talk about. Where does this end? Well, it probably doesn't end for about six weeks. And, in fact, there's already projections that we may be seeing latency, latent infections occurring into the summer months, but they won't be many. Um, I really believe, and, again, this is all conjecture on my part because the CDC is still studying this strain of, of coronavirus. I really believe that, um, you know, yesterday was a pretty warm day. Uh, it was... Um, 
it was 30 degrees this morning, which isn't good because that actually favors viral transmission. But um, I think as, as we get more ultraviolet light, we get more outside. If we can open our windows, get cross-ventilation, people are smart about human contact. They maintain their distances at least six, if not more feet from any other person that they're not in constant contact with anyway. Um, they, they're honest about their symptoms. If employers will step up and say, please just don't come to work. I'll give you work for home. You'll get paid. We'll keep productivity going. If, if factories and, and production people, you know, the internodal transfer facilities just have common sense rules that tell truck drivers, look, and when you come in to get your load, just maintain distance. You know, um, if you're touching the hand truck, please self-sanitize afterwards or sanitize the products afterwards, and we'll do it too. And we'll keep the pallets moving into trucks, and we'll keep the trucks being unloaded. Do drop shipments where you're dropping stuff and you're not coming into contact with people that you're offloading. You know, those sensible things, especially in factories and other production facilities where you can maintain the distance and still keep production going up, you're fine. Um, there'll be people that will be okay. And, and, and by the way, this isn't going to buff out. Okay, there are going to be fatalities. There are going to be some more nursing homes that get hit. But um, I would remind you that the measures you see of shutting off travel to Europe, that's the reason why you can still get in your car and go to Kroger at 6.30 in the morning. In Italy, they can't do that right now. It is so out of control. They've saturated their medical capacity. They can't go anywhere. You still live in a country where you can drive around. The reason why you can drive around is because people, public officials, are taking rather dramatic steps to make sure that we don't shut down movement and transit and turn this thing into what we have out here, a level three snow emergency where no one's allowed on the roads, right? The other day, I was in the, one of the departments in West Virginia, State Department, this one of the state offices in West Virginia, and some text came across saying they shut off all the roads to Ohio. And I said, well, that's funny because I just drove down 35 to get to here, Right. Um, they're not shutting off roads. They're not shutting off roads right now because, first of all, it's impossible. I'm guessing there's probably at least 200 roads. I don't know how many roads go in and out of Ohio from Kentucky, Indiana, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Michigan. There's a bunch of them. We don't need the state police putting up roadblocks and not doing criminal investigation or the state high patrol or local municipal municipalities having to dedicate manpower to block roads off because they got other things to do. They're still criminals. Our people will exploit people because of this. We need our cops out there doing their job. We need our EMS people doing their job. We need our firefighters doing their job. We don't need them trying to control people coming in and out. You know, so it's not helpful, right? And all this conjecture about what the president did or didn't do, first of all, it's almost uniformly false, unless it is did the best he could with the information he had, made a serious decision that has economic consequences, um, and didn't concern himself with an election year, by the way, because there's no positive for this. There's no positive for Governor DeWine. There's no positive for Governor Justice. There's no positive for the president of shutting these things down politically. There's a great positive because they care about people. They care about protecting the people they represent. And so they're trying to do the best they can with what the best medical researchers in the world have told them. That includes China as well as the United States. And that is, look, man, shut it down. Okay, you really believe it? Yep. You understand the implication? I don't care. You need to shut this down. Okay. That's why you pay them the big bucks, because they got to make decisions. They're adulting. Um, I think I've said enough about that. It's been a rather long thing, but I, the reason why I felt compelled to do this is one of the medical students I mentor, and I'm privileged to have several medical students I mentor. Strangely enough, they're almost all girls. I don't know why. They all show up in my office, and one of them once told me, they say, I know you'll tell me the truth, which is actually quite a compliment. I'd like to think I tell the truth. I, I do the best I can. Um, but 
she called me out of concern and she said, should I be scared? My, my mother's older. Should I be, what should I be buying? And I, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that a, a really smart kid, one of the smartest I know, thoughtful kid, is going to be a great doctor, um, is so ill-informed right now because of arrogance in other people or whatever. They got to get something out that they, we can't even have a, have, <laughs> have a clear discussion about what's going on. I want to put a shout out to my colleague Paige Gutiel right now. Paige, you're doing a great job. I watch your social media. I appreciate the demeanor by which you are showing leadership as a family doctor. You're doing an awesome job in Columbus getting things out to people. There are doctors out there right now that are trying to make sure that they're being leaders in adulting. Paige is one of them. And, um, and I think you'll find others. But I would admonish all of you to really take everything you hear with a grain of salt. If it, if it sounds hysterical, it probably is, and it's probably for an agenda. And we don't need to scare our medical students. We don't need to scare our nursing students. These are young people. They're not like us older guys have been around stuff and seen a bunch of stuff and realized, you know, there's things you really got to worry about, right? And there's things that, eh, and there's things that, meh, you know? We try to distinguish between inconvenience, urgency, and crisis. Coronavirus is not an inconvenience, okay? In some parts of the world, it is a crisis. We're at level two globally now, okay? That means really limit contact. If it goes higher than that, it means Italy. You don't leave your house, okay? So what we're trying to do is keep coronavirus in the United States as an urgency and not a crisis, it is more than an inconvenience. There will be people who will die for coronavirus, but because the action is taken by leadership, there will be far less than what happened in Wuhan, okay? Far less. And we can talk about Korea testing everybody in the country. Guess what? Korea has one-sixth of our population, okay? Korea has a slightly different situation than we do. We are rapidly ramping it up. And I would also say, you say, where does this end? I would say in about four weeks, you'll be able to walk in and get a corona swab without any problem at all. Two to four weeks. You'll be able to swab yourself every day if you want to. There'll be enough uh, test kits available. There'll be a widespread enough. They're opening up military testing facilities. They're opening up other hospital-based labs this week to do coronavirus testing. By the way, it's not, it's an oral and a nasal swab. Just so you know, so if you've had flu testing, expect to be swabbed in your throat and swabbed in your nose, and they should probably test you for flu while they're at it. Um, But it's not today. So the adults in the room have to remind people that things take time. This isn't instantaneous. You can't just go TikTok in your way in a little dance party and throw it up on the media inter- interwebs and, you know, have, have 7 million people see it. Okay, that's not how this works. This is science. This takes time and rigor. It has to be reproducible, and it has to be sensible, and it has to be reliable. Uh, I will say this. This is the last thing I'll talk about. Good, fast, and cheap. In engineering, <clears throat> which is my other avocation, in engineering, there is a triangle and if you take the triangle and at each point, you put the, put the following. Good, and the next point's fast and cheap. You can have any two at the exclusion of the third. You can have something that's good and fast, but it won't be cheap. You can have something that's fast and good. Uh, I already said that. You can have something that's cheap and good, um, but it won't be fast, right? Good, fast, and cheap is a principle of engineering and design that will inform you about COVID-19. If you want a cheap and fast test, it will not be good and it won't be reliable. But if you want a good and cheap test, it won't be fast. If you want a good and fast test, it will not be cheap, okay? Those are all things that have to be balanced in this whole thing, okay? So if you have minor symptoms, I have a runny nose, do not go to the ER. 
or urgent care. If you have, um, well, I wonder if I was exposed. Don't go to the ER. Call. Call your family doctor. Call the urgent care. Say, should I come in? And follow the CDC guidelines. You can download them for yourself, and you can see when you should go seek care, and they're reliable. I'm. Uh, this isn't Todd Fredericks telling you how to pr- practice, uh, telling you how to practice medicine or what you should do for your health care. I'm telling you, follow the CDC guidelines. They're telling you what to do, and you'll be part of the solution. Um, this is a little terse. I, I got into it today. I don't mean to do that, but I think it's warranted. I'm sick and tired of watching people that should be leaders and be adults. Uh, using things for their own political or self-aggrandizing or narcissistic purposes. Um, This is a time when American leaders, civilian and military, need to show resolve, need to deal with math and science, and need to reassure people properly because they're depending upon us. And that's who we're really supposed to look after. So with that, I'm going to end. And um, like I say, two or three days, I'll probably put up another one. So thank you for listening. Long, but there you go. Wash your hands. This is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media medicine family of medical storytelling. Opinions and comments expressed in rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. The guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion, so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, narrated by Todd Fredericks. Basically, Todd Fredericks did everything in this episode. Uh, and uh, Brian Plow, we throw him in because he is a producer and a great guy. Uh, our producer at large is Nassard Bakshi. Again, where are you, Nassard? Rotations is periodically co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content editor creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. That said, I will ask you to please share widely, because I think it's important. Get it out on Facebook. Get it out on Twitter. Get it out where Instagram. I don't, I don't know what you guys are using out there, you kids today, but get it out there and share it with your friends because we like it and we think it's pretty fun uh, we welcome any comments and you can contact us by emailing us at uh, rotationspodcast at gmail.com uh, actually better tr fredericks on facebook is good uh, don't turn it into a, a, a hate fest okay it's my private it's my personal facebook page it's it's puppies and and fuzzy objects but share uh, what you think of rotations um, or you can go to at rotations pcast on twitter you can also get me at medical cinema and if you want to get a hold of Plow, it's at Prof Plow, P-R-O-F-P-L-O-W. Uh, and you can also visit our website, mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. 